Hello, good evening, good day, everybody, wherever you are in the world, and welcome to the Ask Abhijit Show, episode one fifty six. I hope you are all doing very well. As always, let's see who all is there on the live chat with us. Let's see who all is there. I can see Pritam, Shaili, Tejo, Meg, Pankaj, Kumar, Tyagi, TDC, Rahul, Soviet Union, with Akash, Shubham, the Akwan, Vault Gaming, Sangeeta, Shots. Jasman Raj Singh, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, greetings sir, Pratham, Sarthak, Romeo, Sam, Alpha, Aditya, Arn, Hola Amigo, Shri Hari Arun, Ashura, Janel, Brahma Prakash, Saini, Omi Vidwala, Achu Sudha, Akshat, Gaurav, Geopolitical Dubey, Tuti Futi, Disha, Lanchenba, Shivdeep Sangra, Vishal, Feminist Slayer, Om Bekherikar, Saurabh Tathagat, Avikshit Rishi, Barkha Batra, Manish, Fatty Just Eight, Krishna Dalvi, Ketan Vankhede, P. Singh, Vivek Suryavanshi, Aditya Kumar Shaw, Prince Punia, Pamel, Aviral Bhatnagar, Potato Praiser, My Name is Luffy, Likhita Bharadwaj, GQ Akshay Sharma, Sly, The Harwood Butcher, Nikhil, Neeraj Singh, Ranjit, Lakshmi, Ram Tudu, Parth Naik, Brijesh, Aditya, Arya, Suvam, Vishal, Pritam, Anant Dev Tyagi, Soviet Union, Puja, Rishi, Chiching, Harita, Vunam, Cicero, Speaket, Rakshit, Debosman, Priyanshu, Super Rex, Aryan, Surajit, Prince Punya, Trupti, Vishal, Brijesh, Sun, and lots and lots and lots and lots of other people. Thank you so much, all of you, for being on the live stream. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I won't be able to greet you all individually, but thank you. I really appreciate it. Right, let us now begin. But before I begin, uh, let me remind those of you who are not aware that uh, uh, this podcast, the Ask Abhijit Show and the other podcasts are available on Spotify and Apple. Let me put it on the screen in case you all are not aware of this. The Ask Abhijit Show is available on Spotify. All uh, Spotify, all the episodes are there. The Indian Interest Podcast is also entirely available on Spotify. So is the Abhijit Chowda Podcast with uh, various uh, people who I speak to. And these podcasts are also available on Apple Podcasts and, and also on Google Podcasts and wherever else podcasts are available. So in case this is something that you prefer to do, listen to podcasts instead of view, viewing them, you can certainly do that on Apple, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, and everywhere else podcasts are available. So just a quick reminder so to those of you who may not be aware, the links are t- always in the in the uh, description of the video, of every video. But just in case people don't look, let me remind them all about this. Yeah. Um, and also before I begin, I would like to, I should have done this a long time ago, but I would like to thank Ramalakshmi for, uh, for religiously putting the timestamps at the end of every after at the end of every live stream, very quickly, Ramalakshmi puts the timestamps with all the you know uh, time codes of all the questions that I answer. Also on the other podcast, the Indian Interest Podcast. So Ramalakshmi, thank you very much. I don't know who you are, where you live, and all, but you have been doing this for, for such a long time, and I am very grateful. And I thank you very much from the bottom of my heart for doing this because it really helps everybody else. It helps the viewers who want to you know dial down to a specific question and see the answer to that. So uh, this this. Uh, 
this YouTube channel is extremely community driven, isn't it? Lots of people have been doing this in the past. In the past, uh, I remember Harshit 2.0 used to do the 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 timestamps for a long time. The Samarth also has been doing it from time to time. In the past, initially, it was Akash Buller who was doing the timestamps. So I've been so fortunate that so many wonderful people have been helping the community out in this manner. So thank you to all of you who have been doing this in the past. And especially thank you, Rama Lakshmi. Please put this in your timestamps. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. I am um, recovering from some what seems to be some kind of virus. Yeah, viruses are doing the rounds these days. Anyway, I'm good. I'm good. All right, let's get into the questions now. What questions do we have? Uh, let's go to question number one. <laughs> Sharma is big. Says, do you did you talk about history, geopolitics, and science with girls when you were younger? If I discuss subjects that are considered to be nerdy, won't it make me seem to be a bit geeky? So how should I go about this? How should I effectively incorporate these ideas into my game for maximum <coughs> excuse me, results? Uh, my dad did not teach me these skills, etc. Thank you. Well, yeah, so listen, uh, did I ever speak about geopolitics and science and history with girls? I don't think so. I don't think I ever did that. Uh, it's not about talking about this to, with girls or boys. Typically, most people have no interest in these things. Most people... They gossip a lot and the topic of their gossip, it just eludes me what they talk about and what they can talk about all day, all night. They just keep on gossiping. I if I, I typically don't gossip. I don't understand what gossip is about. I don't understand how people do small talks. A small talk is something I don't understand. I can talk about issues. I can talk about things. So, you know, I always found throughout my life that history, geopolitics, science, these topics, most 99% of people have no interest in, in, these, in these things, especially in daily life. When I do these these live streams, people watch, and clearly people want to understand this. But in daily life, when the most people have no interest in this, um, and also it's it's you know girls are wired kind of differently, and boys are wired differently. Girls are are they have their interests are in specific topics, and typically boys are interested in other topics. People may tell you these days that you know. All everybody is equal. Of course, everybody should have equal rights and equal everything opportunities. But the genders are wired differently mentally. So boys are more outdoorsy types and they are more interested in sports and action movies and things like that. And girls are more into other stuff. Uh, so I typically did not ever discuss these things with girls or even with most boys. Maybe a couple of boys when I was a kid, a teenager and all that. Um, now about the game and all that. Listen, I was a big time nerd as a kid. I, I had glasses. I still do have glasses for, you know, for looking far away. Uh, so I had glasses and I was interested in all the, all the geekiest subjects in the world, you know, mathematics and science, history, all those things. So yes, I was a nerd. The thing that prevented me from being a nerd entirely is that I was extremely interested in sports and physical activities. And I am a very large, imposing, you know, solidly built person. So uh, it, it, it uh, well, that, that kind of took me out of the nerd zone and into whatever other zone there is. Yeah. So I was interested. I had a lot of interests. Uh, now, the thing is that if you discuss certain topics, you look like a nerd. If you discuss other topics, you look like something else. You know, you got to be who you are. You've got to be who you are. I was a nerd and I kind of embraced that as a kid. I, I, what, and I also was interested in sports. It's not because I, I, I did not develop an interest in sports to escape being a nerd. It's just that I actually liked sports. You know, and if I had the opportunity, if I had had the opportunity, I would have liked to indulge in that a bit, a, a lot more than I did. So um, you got to be who you are. 
I'm not sure about game or something. I never thought of uh, my game or any such thing. Uh, when when you talk about a game, your game, it's typically about impressing the opposite sex, isn't it? That that's what it is about. I think you got to be who you are. You got to be the best version of yourself. Uh, so uh, and of course you've got to develop yourself physically. You cannot simply study, 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 and not do anything else. You have to be a well-rounded person. You got to. well study you got to have knowledge you got to have a good career you also got to develop yourself physically you got to have interests outside of your field of study and and career all those things so overall if you are a well rounded individual well rounded human being then i suppose your game will be good so that's what i could tell you uh typically i in my personal experience i have never found people in real life in day to day life who have much of an interest in geopolitics or science and typically as especially in school as a teenager in college not so much in university but at, at, until the college level if you talk about these things people look at you like who is this what is this person talking about what weird interests does this person have that's typically how it is of course once you go into university where things are more specialized and people are more serious about about higher studies uh, then attitudes change and when you go to the higher studies level especially at the university level then people value specific uh, domains of knowledge and all that so that's how it typically is but in your day to day life these uh, these topics uh, don't hold much currency because most people don't know what they are and what is what they are about and they will be weirded out that why is this person discussing these weird things does he think is an expert of some kind haha <laughs> you know that's how it is so that's what i can tell you if you want to uh what is it develop your game incorporate ideas into your game you got to be the best version of yourself which means raise your standards in 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 an all round manner that's what i can say about this okay swapnil says what is your take on the rise of ai applications like chat gpt what's your projection of ai in the future should we trust chat gpt for answers more than you know me <laughs> i'll always trust and support you no matter what thank you so much swapnil i really appreciate it um what's my take on ai applications look ai is a set of algorithms you you have a machine learning algorithm that that goes through a whole bunch of data an enormous amount of data it may be textual data it may be image based based data image based data it could be video files audio files whatever so you have a bunch of algorithms for text you have a bunch of algorithms for uh for video for audio uh, for images all that and you train your your uh, ai which is the the neural network essentially uh, based on the text or whatever data you're feeding it and you train it for a certain amount of time and then it starts uh, picking up patterns and pattern recognition and then it can give you results now you can always tweak the algorithms to make them more effective or to introduce censorship and bias into them so any ai system application like chat gpt or or bing ai or or whatever it is it's going to have a set of inbuilt biases please understand this and of course it will not have all the information in the world it won't have all the knowledge in the world it won't have trawled through all the information that's available on the internet there will be specific pieces of data or information or or books or whatever it is that may, it may not be aware of and you typically find that when you ask questions about ai you can kind of get a sense of whether it understands the topic deeply or not and often you find especially if you are an expert in a certain domain that ai often not often but sometimes makes up answers 
it sometimes makes up answers and it gives you fictitious information some people call it ai hallucinating or whatever it's not hallucinating you ask a question and ai it seems to feel that it has to give you some kind of answer um you find that more i think with bing these days i i personally haven't tested the ai hallucination part so my point is that you cannot trust ai entirely you cannot trust chat gpt for answers entirely you can certainly use that to get a bunch of information that otherwise would take you many hours to discover but then you have to do your own due diligence and cross verify every single piece of information it is spitting out at you that's what you have to do so it can you know if you if you are a professor or whatever it can uh, ai like chat gpt or bing or whatever can serve as a kind of unpaid research assistant for you if you're a professor if you are in, in some other field or if you're a student also right it can help you with, uh, uh, you know feed you a lot of information that otherwise would take you hours to discover but then you have to do your due diligence due diligence and cross verify cross check every piece of information because it is not necessarily going to be 100% correct and sometimes it may it, it it may look like it's giving you opinions instead of data or 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 factual information so you got to may do your due diligence you have to know how to cross check information that's a skill everybody has to develop especially those of you who are now beginning to you know use chat gpt or whatever else uh to obtain information do research do studies whatever it is so uh in the future see we are just in the infancy of these chatbots and these ai systems they are now able to talk just like a human being it certainly does pass the turing test you can't tell if it's a person or a machine on the other side of the screen that's interacting with you so it's definitely passed the turing test but it's not conscious it's not awake it's not self aware you ask it questions about self awareness it's going to talk talk back to you as if it's a human being and uh, all that but it's it's just a machine uh it is generating a text based on probabilistic uh on a probabilistic approach the that's what it is doing uh so we are simply in the infancy right now of ai a year from now you're going to have much more systems that are way more powerful than what we have today chat gpt and being ai just a year from now in 5 years time the whole world is going to be totally different the world will have changed completely so ai is going to be the future but people who blindly trust ai are going to be led down the garden path please understand that you blindly trust ai and, and you know believe whatever it says you going to it's going to be just like studying your ncert textbooks and believing everything blindly that's what most people do unfortunately i would say 98 99% of students students simply believe everything your history textbooks and your history teachers teach you you do and and they are going to go ahead and do the same with ai so this is for those of you who watch the channel you the, the those of you who watch the channel are not like that you you actually do understand that things uh, you know these things cannot be trusted entirely ncert textbooks indian history textbooks professors uh, experts historians they they are very problematic aren't they we know that so so think of ai just the same way as you would think of irfan habib or romila thapar that's how you would think of ai so do study romila thapar's textbooks because there will be information that will be relevant and and useful but she's going to inject a whole bunch of opinion and bias into it into the information so as long as you're aware that this book is going to con- contain a lot of bias and opinion rather than facts 
once you, as long as you're aware of it, you can study it, and and as long as you do do your due diligence and cross verify everything, you'll be fine. Otherwise, you're gonna be led down the garden to garden path and be taken for a fool. So the same thing, the same approach has to be there with AI. Cross check everything it says. So ideally, what you would want to do if you want to learn something new or, or gain some information about, let's say, the Mongol invasion of Carpathia or, or whatever it was, then ask AI to give you a bunch of 20 points. Explain the so-and-so event and give me in 20 bullet points. And then take each bullet point and cross-verify the information from wherever you can other obtain information from reliable sources. That's what you need to do. In the future, AI is going to take over everything. Right now, we're just having these chatbots. You know, a chat, uh, chatbots that chat back to you. In the future, I think it's already there. AI is now able to generate music, totally unique music, interesting music. Some sometimes, it's gonna, it's already able to generate images and artwork. You enter a text prompt, it's gonna throw out, spit out an image at you. So AI is already generating images. AI has already uh, gone into the, the, you know, entered the realm of music generation. All you have to do is you tell it what genre you want, whether it is electronic music, whether it is classical music, or whether it is hip hop, or, or whatever the genres are, and you can enter the beats per minute BPM. Musicians will understand that, and then you can you know add some other parameters, you know whatever they are, and it's gonna give you like five or ten or as many as you want tracks based on the parameters. So music is there, images are there, text is already there. In the future, you're gonna have video, and very realistic video. So it's going to create this problem of deep fakes. You know, people are going to superimpose somebody's face on in an AI video and it'll look like it's that person and the, even the voice can be replicated. So you're going to have all these, you know, videos and all these things that will come up. Um, so it's going to totally change lots of industries. It's going to disrupt a lot of industries. It's already disrupting art. You know, you, you can get AI to produce any amount of artwork in the style of any artist. Let's say you want a dog eating a sandwich on a beach on Mars in the style of Vincent van Gogh. It's going to do it for you in a matter of seconds. It's going to spit out 20 images like that in a matter of seconds. Imagine any weird thing you want in the style of X, uh, X artist or Y artist or Z artist. It's going to do it for you. It's already putting artists out of work. It's going to do the same thing for musicians. Right now, all music, you know, in the 21st century, all music sounds the same already. The big music labels, they are they, they, they have done that to music. There is no individuality in music anymore. The lyrics won't make any sense. I mean, the lyrics are all the same. The music is all the same, blah, 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 nonsense. So very soon, AI is going to produce these music tracks. And musicians and singers are going to be put out of commission. That's what's going to happen. Um, the education industry is going to be totally disrupted. So there's a huge disruption coming and people with very specific skills will be able to survive this, especially when AI comes into the field of robotics, when robotics, uh, when robots will be equipped with AI, they're going to take over entire industries that are, that are based on low skilled labor. For in, give me, let me give you an example of high skilled labor in which AI, AI robotics is going to disrupt the world. Fighter jets. Fighter aircraft. Today, you spend hundreds of man hours training fighter pilots in a very specific set of skills, very, very difficult uh, to master set of skills. In the next five to 10 years, this, this field is going to be entirely taken over by robotics, uh, ro robotic aircraft equipped with AI systems. So these robotic aircraft are going to take over the role of fighter pilots. 
and they so you you you're gonna take the Tejas for instance the Tejas fighter plane, equip it with AI which operates autonomously, and then you don't have a need a pilot on that. That's what's going to happen very soon. Another aircraft, so it's going to disrupt the entire world, and we're going to have to figure out how to survive this. It's going to take away jobs, especially low skilled jobs, low skilled labor. It's going to be totally made redundant. So people are going to have to, governments are going to have to find a solution to this, and we individuals will have to find a solution to this. We. If you want to remain relevant in the world, you have, you have to acquire a set of skills, develop a set of skills, invest in yourself in such a way that it's something that AI can't take over. So that's the conundrum we are all facing. And maybe I need to, you know, maybe do an entire episode on this and, and think about it deeply and give you specific answers of how to do that. But thus, as of today, as of right now, I, this is what I can tell you. Prepare for what's coming. It's coming. And no one's going to stop it. It's, this is just, just the beginning. We are in the infancy of AI. 2023 is the year of AI. It's the infancy of AI. By 25, the world is going to be totally different. By 2030, well, I, I don't even know what to say. So it's coming. Prepare for it. It's going to affect every one of us. Each one of us. Okay, another question by, uh, by Swapnil. Can you explain Godel's incompleteness theorem and its implications on artificial intelligence? Excellent question. So uh, let's first talk about who was Kurt Godel, shall we? Let us uh, type in Godel. Godel. And let me put that on the screen. Just give me a second. He was an Austrian mathematician. Uh, that's who Kurt Godel was. Let's put him on the screen. Let's, let's see what it looks like. looked like. Uh, he was an Austrian-born logician, mathematician, and philosopher. He was born in 1906, died in 1978. So that's what it looked like. Now, what is Godel's incompleteness theorem? And how do I explain it in a non-technical, non-mathematical sense? Imagine you have an enormous puzzle. You know, imagine you have a huge jigsaw puzzle with hundreds, maybe thousands of pieces. And your job is to put the puzzle together. So you work really hard. You may take days or weeks putting all the pieces together with a lot of frustration, a lot of hard work. And finally, when you think you've solved the puzzle, you realize that a few pieces are missing. They were missing from the beginning, but you didn't know about it. So Godel's incompleteness theorem is kind of like that. It says that in mathematics, there are some things that you simply cannot prove or solve no matter how hard you try. It's like in mathematics, there are some missing pieces that you simply can't find. That is in, in a very rudimentary form what Godel's uh, incompleteness theorem is. So it's a landmark result in mathematical logic. That which uh, I think he, he proved it in 1929, 1930, somewhere around there. And it totally... Uh, radically altered our understanding of the limits of mathematical understanding. So it says any formal system of mathematics which is sufficiently complex and powerful enough to express arithmetic contains statements within itself that cannot be proven or disproven within the system itself. So it, which what it means is that there are some true mathematical statements that are unprovable using the rules and axioms of the system. So this is, when it came out, it shocked people. It shocked mathematicians because it challenges the idea that mathematics is a self-contained, completely self-contained closed system that can, in principle, provide a complete and consistent account of all mathematical truths. So that's why it was shocking. Now, why is it important for the field of AI? So, you know, what, in, what is an AI system? 
so it has a lot of uh, this incompleteness theorem has several implications for the field of artificial intelligence the most important thing is that it places fundamental limits on what can be accomplished by an ai system an automated reasoning system what is an ai system it's an automated reasoning system that's what it is it's a bunch of algorithms automated reasoning automated reasoning is mathematical in nature so godel's incompleteness theorem places fundamental results on what can uh, fundamental limits on what can be accomplished by an automated reasoning system so any ai that uh, any ai system that relies on automated reasoning which is all ai systems it, these systems will always have some limitations and they will not be able to fully replicate the capabilities of human reasoning so one of the goals of ai research is to uh, achieve strong artificial intelligence okay let's let's remove mr godel from the screen here we are so one of the goals one of the major goals of ai ai research currently is to st achieve strong artificial intelligence which means human level general ai general artificial intelligence currently what we have is we have ais like the chat box chat bots that we just discussed like uh, stable diffusion and whatever else we have which generates images and all that so currently we have ai which is a bunch of algorithms in what's called turing machines which are consistent axiomatic systems these are all subject to the theorem godel's incompleteness theorem so this tells you that human consciousness transcends these algorithmic systems these turing machines because human minds through in introspection can recognize their own inconsistencies we do understand once you know when we introspect we do recognize our flaws and our inconsistencies within ourselves in our minds but under godel's incompleteness theorem this is impossible for turing machines yeah so that's why people like uh, roger penrose and and uh, dr subhash kak also has spoken about this they have said that it's impossible for ai to reproduce the real traits of human minds such as mathematical insight so even when a human being is is you know solving mathematical problems we are we are able to understand that this system will have inconsistencies we know godel's incompleteness theorem and all that so the human mind transcends uh the 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 godel's incompleteness theorem but these algorithmic systems these 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 uh, turing machines cannot they are bound by it they are confined by it so essentially strong ai systems want to be able to really think because they are limited by this incompleteness theorem human thinking is not limited by the by the uh, by the incompleteness theorem human beings are illogical at times we are irrational at times we, our thinking is not mathematical our thinking our thinking is wholly wholly different we can't even totally properly uh, properly define the the process of human thought or 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 you know create a flow chart or whatever it is there are leaps of imagination and logic you know so this theorem essentially suggests that human intuition and creativity play a crucial role in mathematical reasoning you know mathematical reasoning when we are solving you know when we are working on mathematics we are trying to solve a theorem all that human intuition or intuition and creativity play a crucial role in that that's the what the best mathematicians have always been like uh, people such as uh, von neumann like uh, what's his name beautiful mind i forget his name john nash and so on 
these guys were extremely intuitive their system of thinking was something that you could not replicate think about ramanujan he used to say that he saw dreams in the night his goddess goddess ramagiri would come to him in the night in, in his dream and give him mathematical theorems he would wake up and write them down and these these results were correct that is incredible leaps of creativity and intuition and and who knows what else so the human mind doesn't work like a machine the theorem this godel's incompleteness theorem tells you that human intuition and creativity is something that these turing machines these algorithmic machines these ai systems are incapable of these qualities cannot be fully replicated in any of these systems so this also kind of suggests that uh, there could be alternative uh, approaches to artificial intelligence that rely less on uh, formal reasoning and maybe other kinds of intelligence such as pattern recognition or heuristic reasoning or or we don't know quite yet what it is so that's what godel's incompleteness theorem tells us that ai most likely will not be able to replicate human level intelligence and will definitely not be able to become conscious unless we try radically different approaches the kind of approaches we have never tried thus far that is what godel's incompleteness theorem uh, that's what the implications are for the field of artificial intelligence very interesting field i'm just scratching the surface over here but it's a fascinating topic in case any of you are interested okay this is a question from linkedin i think sujay says is a war between india and china inevitable within this decade mm, interesting question is a war between india and china inevitable let's say the chinese push in, uh, push india into a war see india is not a warmongering country india just wants peace and tranquility on the nor- northern border with tibet india has no uh, ambitions to invade tibet and and grab tibet and uh, annex tibet india has never wanted to do that in the past 10000 years of indian history we have never done that well more or less all right so we have never done that and we have no ambitions of of making tibet part of india so the chinese know the chinese know that they don't face any threat from india in the himalayas tibet is 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 a region that doesn't face any threat from from india there is no imminent danger of an indian invasion and take over of tibet the chinese know that and yet the entire border let map we must have the map we cannot talk without maps because maps are very important where is the map where is the map right let's take a look at uh, look at the border this is the map and uh, the india tibet border is essentially uh, a very 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 long border that stretches from uh, kashmir jammu and kashmir gilgit baltistan the afghan border all the way to arunachal pradesh and the burmese border the macmahon macmahon line so the chinese know that india is not a nation that is threatening an invasion of tibet india has never done that well india had the chance if it wanted in the 1950s india did not ever bother to do that so india is not going to do that and yet the border is highly militarized it is because of the chinese threat to india that the border is militarized not because of the indian threat to china the chinese know they know very well that india doesn't pose a threat now the question is is a war inevitable it is it is going to ha- a war is going to happen only if the chinese make the move only if the chinese trigger off you know they, they, their actions trigger a war or they cross a certain red line that india cannot uh, you know help but retaliate to only in that case will a war happen so the question really is that does china want to go with in uh, to war with india within this decade <clears throat> so let's understand uh, the logic 
is china in a position where it can afford to go to war with india what does it stand to gain what does it stand to lose it may stand to gain a little bit of territory if they think they can win some territory from india they may want to cut off the the siliguri corridor which uh, you know this little uh, piece of geography over here uh, they may want to perhaps possibly take some part of arunachal pradesh or maybe the entirety of arunachal pradesh especially tawang which they have been coveting for a long time they may want to do some more mischief in maybe ladakh or whatever so they may you know stand if they think they can win a war then they may stand to take some make some more territorial gains from their perspective from their point of view from their thinking that's what they could gain from a war but then what will happen that will push india entirely into the american embrace and america will be very happy with that so does so right now india is following a really genuinely independent foreign policy india is not overtly in the us camp the only reason why india is part of the quad and all that is because of the chinese threat and that is entirely up to china whether they want to keep this happening or not so uh, so if china goes to war with india they are guaranteed to push india 100% into the american camp and that is going to be advantage us and the us is the only superpower in the world way more powerful than china the chinese are you know they are not even able to take back taiwan they are not able to break free of the first or the second or the third island chain the americans are the major power in the asia pacific region not china despite whatever you may believe so the chinese are you know it would be extremely counterproductive for the chinese to go to 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 make a bigger enemy of india than what they've already done right now india is trying to to pursue a balanced and entirely independent foreign policy that is something that's in china's interest and the thing is that the chinese rise is no longer happening the so called peaceful rise of china until 2019 that's what was happening the chinese were on track to replace and displace the us as us as the world's biggest economy by 2035 to 2040 or thereabouts definitely by 2050 that was the big ambition the big aim of china that's no longer going to happen the chinese economy is not projected to surpass the us or equal the us economy until 2067 if ever at all most likely it will never happen the chinese economy and the gdp is contracting most nations don't trust china anymore the belt and road initiative is is dead in the water the maritime silk road is not happening no real progress anymore these were the great vehicles that were supposed to make china a superpower it's not happening and there's an impending demographic disaster in china the population collapse is coming it's already happening now the total fertility rate is less than 1.2 which is a which is a genuine catastrophe for any nation and the population is projected to become half of what it is by 2100 and most of the population by that time will be elderly that's a disaster is a nation that faces this sort of prospect in any kind of position to make a huge enemy of india which for and for india the demographic window is going to be open until 2040 2050 so india has a demographic dividend china is staring at a demographic disaster china's economy is contracting india's economy is rising china is you know from if if they think logically and rationally and calmly and unemotionally like the chinese do they will realize they are in no position to make a bigger enemy of india than what they have already done on over the past 60 70 years so i think that it is now unlikely that the chinese will want to go to war with india this decade and by the time this decade is out india is going to be a much larger economy 
the way things are going. So after in the 2030s, it will be even less likely that the Chinese would want to tangle with India in any sense whatsoever. Um, and the Chinese are already making the noises, you know, the right noises. The the, China, the new Chinese foreign minister was in India this past week. He met with uh, Dr. Jaishankar and, uh, you know, the, the Chinese, the, the, the statements they made were that they want a normalization of the border situation and, the, you know, whatever, making the border situation less tense and bringing the things back to normalcy. And it appears that things may be afoot on the ground as well in the direction. The Chinese are trying to de-escalate now. That's what they want. They understand the long-term prospects that they are facing and they understand the kind of growth India will most likely have. And the Chinese are in no position to actually defeat India in a Himalayan war. In in an extremely challenging terrain like the Himalayas, especially with the climate, the Chinese have significant disadvantages. They may try, if they do try to fight a war with India, they may, it may be extraordinarily counterproductive for them. They may actually lose the war and lose face very badly. India could take out lots of their bases in Tibet. The bases in Tibet are naked to the to the open eye. They are very well, they are properly visible from satellite images and everything, and they cannot be hidden. On the other hand, in India, we can hide things because we have an enormous forest cover in Arunachal, in northern India, etc. And the when it comes to extremely high altitude warfare, technology takes a back seat and the quality of, of your soldiers takes a front seat. And, in, and there also India has a significant advantage. So the, so the Chinese are not in a position to win a Himalayan war with India. This time, the Indian army is waiting for the Chinese to make a move. If they go, if they cross a line, they're going to be taught a lesson they will never ever forget. And in China, in China, in the Chinese Communist Party, failure is never tolerated. If Xi Jinping tries to fight the war with India and suffers a setback, it's going to be the end of his political career, maybe his life. So I think two years ago, I would have told you something else because at that time, the Chinese economy was booming. But in the past two, two and a half, three years, everything has made a 360, uh, 180 degree turn, a U-turn. And now things are very different for China. So I don't think China is in any position to, to, to tangle with India and start a war with India this decade or, or in the next two decades or maybe not this century now. That's what I think. So I think uh, a war between India and China is not inevitable this decade. I think it is more and it's becoming more and more unlikely now. That's how rapidly the global geopolitical scenario has changed and turned around. Two years ago, it was totally different. Now it's totally different. So I think it's advantage India. India has to focus on the economy, economic growth, development, uh, reforms, uh, infrastructure, and the military growth. If India does this, I think nobody except the US can stop India then. SSAN says, why is the world listening to India now and not ever before? What have we done that we are in a position in this position now? And what mistakes to avoid so that the young population helps in the growth of the country? Uh, why is the yes, the world is listening to India now. Though in India figures in most global conversations, uh, great power conversations. And what's what have we done now that we did not do before? Well, firstly, we have a very strong independent foreign policy which prioritizes India's national interest over everything else. Over everything else. We don't care what the Americans want. We don't care what the Chinese want, what the Russians want. We care what we what is in our best interest and we will always put that first. And that's how we are dealing with international relations. When you do that, people respect you. 
when you have self respect people respect you in the past india the the stance of the indian government and the in the former prime ministers was that india has no ambition of being a great power we 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 have no ambitions of being great and our foreign policy was often times i would say uh it would take a back seat to the to the national priorities of other nations that's how it was always done in the past it's the first time since 1947 india has a robust independent foreign policy that always puts india's national interest first so that's the first thing and secondly india's economy is growing again it's stagnated for a long time but it's now growing again and it's projected to keep growing and india is focusing on infrastructure development which is going to speed up the economy so you india is building 30 40 50 kilometers of highways every single day imagine that we are bringing in hundreds of new high tech trains the vande bharat trains and we're going to soon in the next 5 10 years maybe start building more bullet trains we are building new airports almost every year a few new airports come in we are significantly expanding our air, airline fleet the number of air, uh, airports that we have tier 2 tier 3 cities are also going to be com- uh, connected by air it's now affordable for just about anybody to, tra- to travel by air in the past it was like a big luxury for someone to travel by air so everything is changing now the data rates are extremely low in india the internet data rates lowest in the world i think india is totally transforming and revolutionizing uh, the entire infrastructure that we have that's what this government is doing uh, it's these things have never done before the entire country is more or less electrified obviously there will be some spots somewhere or the other where the electricity has not reached yet because we have an extremely challenging terrain in some parts of india but more or less the entire country is now electrified you can see the results from space now in nighttime images we we are you know if you look at the nighttime imagery of nations and the kind of light output is there india surpasses china already by by a big margin if you if you consider that as a yardstick and um, so there's so and and everybody has bank accounts now everybody has insurance these things they are going to bear fruit in the next 10 20 30 years you you will not see the result immediately but it's it's already put india on the cusp of a major economic explosion productivity and and growth of the economy that's what's happening the world sees it they they can't help but see it and when you do this the world will take you extremely seriously you place an order for 800 aircraft roughly it's going to create a million jobs in the us and many more in in france uh, in france and the uk we are able to now affect the world's economy through our own actions that serve our interests in when you put yourself when you do the really hard work and you put yourself in this position the world will listen to you the world will take you extremely seriously and they will respect you so that is what india has done it has been done by the government of narendra modi nobody else all right that is the fa- that is a fact no one else did it mr manmohan singh did nothing of the sort uh, neither did the prime ministers who came before mr manmohan singh dr manmohan singh sorry so so that's what's happened in india has never been taken seriously in the past only in the last 5 6 years this has happened and now they are taking india very seriously and it's going to only increase in the in the future india is where china was in the 1990s right now that's where we are the chinese were extremely serious about their growth about their national interest and the world started taking them seriously in the 1990s itself they already they had started talking about china as a potential superpower in the 1990s itself india is now at that stage they now understand that india is serious india means business 
India is not going to tolerate any nonsense. And that's why they are taking India seriously now. In the next five to ten years, they will they will most likely take India more seriously than they take China right now. It's a possibility if we do things right. So that's why this change has come about. It's come about because of the policies of the Narendra Modi government and the incredible hard work they've done. You may like him or hate him. I don't care what it is. Facts are facts. Um, now, what mistakes to avoid so that, the, so that the young population helps in the growth of the country? Well, the mistake you avoid is you don't stop reforming the nation, reforming the government, governance system, reforming the bureaucracy, reforming everything, and you don't stop creating more infrastructure. We are just beginning. We have to we have to connect the entire nation thoroughly through highways, through railroads, through airports. We have to reform the bureaucracy. We have to reform the judiciary. We have to reform the governance system. We have to root out corruption, which is still a big issue. We have to reform the, the political system, uh, maybe bring in a new constitution, a new, uh, maybe a presidential system. These are long-term goals, maybe next 10, 20 years, not immediately. But these things will truly catapult India to, to a genuine, uh, maybe possibly even superpower status in the long run. So these things need to happen. The education system needs to be reformed. There are enormous challenges that need to be addressed, but these will happen organically as India's economic might and military might grows. Once you do that, there will be the larger is your economy, the more powerful is your economy and military, the less foreign interference there will there be in your internal matters. Right now, there is still a significant amount of foreign interference in our internal matters. All the millions of NGOs in India, many of them are funded from abroad. There are all kinds of activities that are happening within India. Many of India's, well, some of India's possibly, allegedly, institutions may be compromised, some would say. So all these things will be dealt with organically as India's military and economic might grows. Once you are that powerful, the world will not be in a position to interfere that much under the name of human rights or democracy or promoting this or that or whatever. It's none of your business. Get out of here. That's going to be the uh, message that we will give to them eventually. So that's what the government needs to keep doing. What can the young population do to grow to help grow the country? Well, be productive. Understand yourself, understand what your strengths and weaknesses are, focus on your strengths, develop them more, and be productive. Uh, if you are, if you if you take a nine to nine to five job, do your best in contributing to your company or to your employer. If you take up entrepreneurship, create more jobs. Create more jobs and create value that the society can actually benefit from. That's a simple thing. So raise your standards, develop yourself into an all-round uh, well-developed person who has reached, who can reach the full extent of your potential and contribute to society in whatever way you can. If everybody does that, it's going to really transform society. Right now, India, unfortunately, is to a large extent a nation of very low low standards. Chalta hai attitude, right? That's what they say. So that needs to go. So, so the main thing you can do is to be, is to raise your standards, contribute more to society through whatever means you have and if you are into business or entrepreneurship create jobs create jobs and give new more people the opportunity to contribute in their own way to the nation to the society that's what you can do 
Okay, Rupayan Ghosh says, Japanese foreign minister has skipped the G20 foreign minister summit in India. The Japanese government stated that it happened due to budget session in the parliament of Japan. The US's Bloomberg media described it as Japan's snub to India. In recent times, India-Japan joint military exercises and bilateral cooperation has taken place. Then what's your view on this US Vassal state's decision? Is it a matter of concern or not? Well, you know, understand the chronology. Chronology, <laughs> like they would say, you first had the G20 foreign minister summit, and right after that, you had the Quad summit. In the same week, in the same week, the, for the G20 foreign minister summit, uh, the foreign minister of Japan does not come. And right after that, in the same week, you have the Quad foreign minister's summit, which happens in New Delhi itself. And the foreign minister of Japan does come for that. So I would say. It's not a snub to India that he, he decided to skip the G20 foreign minister summit. It's a snub to the G20 organization. That's what it is. He did not come for the G20 thing. He came for the quad thing in New Delhi itself, right after the G20 summit ended in the same week itself. So in what way is it a snub to India? It simply means that for the, for the government of Japan, G20 does not figure high on their priorities, but the quad does. The quad is extremely important for them. It tells you what the government's priorities are. Both events happen in India. Both events happen in the same week. And he came to India. He came to New Delhi. He met with Dr. Jaishankar. He met with the other foreign ministers. The Quad Summit, uh, the Quad Foreign Ministers Summit, the event took place. It went off perfectly fine. So if the US Bloomberg media has described it as Japan's snub to India, they need to stop smoking whatever they're smoking. Yeah. India and Japan, we understand Japan is a U.S. vassal state. Like, like I, I have started using the terminology. I'm, I'm sure it's spread now. Um, Japan, as we know, is under U.S. military occupation. It's been that way since 1945. Their foreign policy essentially is an extension of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, so that tells you that for the U.S., Japan needs to take the Quad seriously. They want to use Japan as an integral and, and strong component of the Quad. And for the for the US, Japan need not attend the, the G20 summit because the G20 is, 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 well, it's a different kettle of fish. The G20 has historically been uh, an organization that uh, prioritizes and focus, prioritizes economic development and growth and cooperation. That's historically what's it, what it's been about. These days, they are introducing more geopolitical activities. They're using it as as, as a tool for, as an extension, as a tool for uh, for prioritizing and promoting their geopolitical interests. That we that's what we saw in New Delhi this time. It was a very politicized uh, summit, and. Uh, the, the foreign ministers were not able to come to a consensus about the final draft document, the final document that that is put out, which is why, which is why the text reflected that that there was there was a lack of unanimity unanimity about the various paragraphs. All the foreign ministers did not agree to paragraphs three and four in the document. So that's what happened. <clears throat> so now it's been being politicized, but overall it's in in no. In no sense a snub to India. If it is a snub, it's a snub to the G20 group of nations. It's not a snub to India. So Japan prioritizes the Quad over G20. That's all it tells you. And they did send their deputy foreign minister for the G20 summit. So, so that's that. So uh, it is not a matter of concern for India. Obviously, India needs to read the tea leaves very carefully. We have to think about, see, every action in, in global 
geopolitics every action has significance every action has overt and covert meanings for instance the kind of uh, welcome that mr sergey lavrov received in india when he reached delhi red carpet welcome lots of officials to meet him you know proper respect given to him and his nation that is that contrasts very strongly with the welcome that the german foreign minister the lady was given i don't remember her name uh, there was no red carpet for her and there was nobody to welcome her except for some low ranking officials one or two and her own uh, embassy staff that that is a very not so subtle message that india has sent to germany that we don't take you seriously anymore you don't matter to us that's what india has told germany very clearly this time russia really matters to india germany we don't take them seriously so so everything in geopolitics has significance every action has significance so japan chose to send their deputy foreign minister instead of their actual foreign minister for the g20 summit but for the quad summit they sent their foreign minister so it's not in any means by any sense a snub to india it's simply a snub to the g20 it's the, the japanese government is saying that the g20 is not that important to us but the quad is that's all it is it, there's nothing else to it all right next question akshansh sharma says does india also have a nuclear football or something like potus has with himself skinny <coughs> Also, can the PM, Prime Minister of India, give the direct command to fire nuclear missiles? Okay, what is this nuclear football? Let's take a look at nuclear football. Let me put that on the screen. So, the nuclear football is a briefcase. Let's uh, where we where are we? Let me put that on the screen. Nuclear football. It's a briefcase that uh, always travels with the U.S. president. That's typically what it looks like. It's carried by military personnel it's uh, that's what it looks like and this this briefcase contains a device that has all the nuclear launch codes it is what enables the us president to if required launch a nuclear strike or retaliatory strike or attack from anywhere in the world using the contents of this briefcase so it will have a device which enables the president to do this and this device is supposed to travel with the us president everywhere he goes it should always be in close proximity to the us president because the us president is the only person who has who has the authorization to to launch or, or to or to authorize a nuclear strike that's what the nuclear football is uh I remember an incident in I think 2017 when President Trump visited China, and uh, he was supposed to go to the Great Hall of the People or whatever it's called in Beijing, this big, big, big hall, and give a speech there. And his uh, his his entourage contained. Uh, I mean, they had the nuclear football with them, and the Chinese were trying to prevent them from bringing this device into the Great Hall of the People. And there was an actual physical altercation, a scuffle between the security personnel of China and the U.S. And eventually, the Chinese had to apologize, and they allowed the nuclear football to be brought with President Trump inside the inside the hall. So this demonstrates that this device is supposed to always be very close to the U.S. president wherever he is. When this is something that he that goes with him whenever he travels outside of the white house in the white house there is a proper command structure or whatever from where he can launch he can authorize a nuclear strike otherwise this device travels with him now the question obviously is so now that we understand what the nuclear football is i don't know why they call it a football but whatever maybe that's how it shaped inside we don't know 
So the question is, does India also have something like this? Uh, does the Prime Minister of India also have such uh, a device that tr- that is always clo- in close proximity to him? I have seen oftentimes uh, Indian security personnel, the highest authorization security personnel, who are in the immediate entourage of the Prime Minister of India. I have seen, I have witnessed them also at times carrying a big bulky briefcase. Wherever Mr. Modi goes, there will be one, one gentleman very dressed very, very sharply, dark suit, uh, dark glasses, something in the ear, device in the ear, and that gentleman will be carrying a large uh, briefcase. So I don't know what that is, but it looks like India may also have some such device. I mean, it makes sense for India to, to for the president, for the prime minister to travel with a device like that, so that uh, a nuclear strike can be launched if required. Ever, I hope it never happens, but the uh, the option always has to be there. Uh, so, as far as I know, in India, it is only the prime minister who can give the direct command to launch a nuclear strike. The president of India is a ceremonial position, no real power. The president doesn't have the authorization or the or the power to do that, and neither does any other politician. It's only the prime minister who can give the direct command. And then the command will be executed, I believe, by, by elements within the Indian armed forces, the actual strike. So what sort of missile to launch, where it is supposed to, to which places is it supposed to go visit, pay a visit to, uh, what is the you know the the yield of the nuclear weapon. All those calibrations, all those all those things will be already programmed into the device if it exists. Uh, so yeah, I think it is possible that the Indian Prime Minister may also have such a device. I don't think they have ever answered this question or or given any statement to this effect. But one does see whenever Modi Prime Minister Modi travels that somebody carries a, a briefcase kind of uh, kind of thing. Uh, very close to him. I've, I've seen that on, on a number of occasions. So in the case of the US, we know they have such a device, the nuclear football. India may possibly have it. Uh, when when President Putin of Russia travels, I, I don't think I've noticed anyone carrying them. Maybe they keep it very discreet. It makes a lot of sense for Mr. Putin to also travel with a device like that because, you know, when when the leader travels abroad, that's, that's actually the best time to, to launch an attack on a nation. So I think possibly Russia may also have it. Which are, the other, which are the other nations that have nuclear weapons? Uh, we know it's the US, Russia, India. We spoke about them. China has it. Uh, China has nuclear weapons. France, UK, Israel, North Korea, and Pakistan. Pakistan is a rogue state, obviously. The Pakistani Prime Minister, I don't think, has the authority to launch nuclear attacks. It's only the army chief who would have it, I suppose. In North Korea, I'm sure it's Mr. Kim Jong-un who has the authority to do it. He rarely, if ever, travels out of the country. So we don't know if he has such a device. When it comes to Israel... The Prime Minister of Israel does travel a lot. I'm not sure. I suppose it's the Prime Minister who should have the authority. But once again, Israel is not a self-declared nuclear state. We know they have nuclear weapons, but they have never declared it officially. So we don't know what the the status is. When it comes to the UK, I don't think the UK Prime Minister has the launch codes for their nuclear missiles. The UK is nothing but an extension of the US, especially foreign policy, military policy. So I think, and we know that the UK's nuclear weapons, the British nuclear weapons, are mated to American missiles, ballistic missiles. So it only makes sense that the launch codes for those missiles will actually be in the hands of the US president rather than the UK's prime minister. So the UK is a, is a nominal nuclear power, but I don't think the UK prime minister actually has the power to launch a nuclear attack. When it comes to France, I am sure the French 
President Mr. Macron would have the authority to launch a nuclear strike, but I have not seen as far as I know any such device travel with him. And I haven't seen such a thing travel with Mr. Xi Jinping either. But I'm sure they all have the ability to, to launch a nuclear strike if required from anywhere in the world. It makes sense for them to have such a capability or such a device that travels with them. All right. Good question. Yes. Saurabh says, <coughs> excuse me. Saurabh says, was Ashoka a Buddhist before the Kalinga War? And why then why these false narratives are pushed for such a long period to demean Hinduism? Yeah. Excuse me. Uh, so, uh, yes, Ashok, Emperor Ashok did start practicing both the dharma, the precepts of both the dharma before, uh, a few years before he launched an invasion, the invasion of Kalinga, the Great Kalinga War, which was a, which was a terrible catastrophic war. So he, it is known now that he did begin to practice the precept of Buddhism, what we call Buddhism, both the dharma, uh, a few years before the war. So yes, he was a Buddhist before the Kalinga War. The the standard narrative that is peddled in India's history textbooks is that he was a Hindu, and after the Kalinga War, he was filled with remorse, and then he converted to Buddhism as if there was a conversion ceremony or something, and then he became all peaceful because of Buddhism. So the the message that is being sold, send, sent, or sold to students for generations in India's history textbooks is that Hinduism is a violent religion. Buddhism is the opposite of Hinduism. It is a much better thing than Hinduism. Hinduism evil, Buddhism good. Hinduism violent, Buddhism peaceful. That's the message, the subliminal messaging that has been used to brainwash generations of Indians. So why have our historians done this? It's to brainwash people. It's to The overall long-term objective is to eradicate Hinduism and Dharmic religions from India to turn India, the population of India, uh, to convert the population of India to one of the various Abrahamic religions. Typically, it's just two of them, Christianity and Islam. And India's government has been hand in glove with these foreign elements. We know that Prime Minister Nehru, the great man himself, Shri Nehruji, he was instrumental in the total, almost entire conversion of various uh, tribal communities in Northeast India to Christianity. In 1900, less than 1% of the population of the, the Far East of India, North East of India was Christian. Today, the entire culture is wiped out from places like Nagaland and, and certain other states in the Northeast. The same is happening in Manipur. And it's it's a process that's, that's active right now. So, they have eradicated the beautiful indigenous culture of large regions of what we call North East India, the Far East of India. Uh, and obviously, that's something that's also happening in other, other parts of India. It's happening wherever you have what they call the Adivasi people, the tribal belts and all that. That's where it first begins. And then they try to bring it into the mainstream. Uh, so, you know, it's 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 a process of, of uh, artificially re-engineering the demographics of India. And various governments, state governments, allegedly, etc., have been, uh, you know, complicit in this. So this is all this is all aided by the Indian education system. When you put it into when you when you brainwash children to believe that their ancestral religion, culture is evil, it makes it very easy for them to at a later time in life convert out of their culture and their religion. So 
overall that's what it is they want to uh, that's what the british wanted you know the east india company only was here in india for trade and for plunder but later on the missionary elements got introduced in this and the objective of the missionaries was to destroy indian culture and eradicate, eradicate uproot india's culture and convert everyone to christianity and obviously when the turkic invasions happened their objective was also to destroy eradicate violently india's culture and convert everybody to the religions that the turks favored they tried their best and they succeeded to a certain extent that's why we have these that's why the subcontinent was divided along religious lines and now it's it's uh, so so the indian education system helps uh, these elements i have nothing against any religion in in, in any specific religion personally my only thing is that uh, any attempt to artificially reengineer society has to be ended it has to be you know it has to be made illegal so the indian education system is a great help for all these foreign elements when it comes for the indian education system uh, subtly maligns hinduism portrays it uh, portrays it as evil violent regressive foreign the aryan invasion theory also helps a lot to intellectualize that so that you know college students can give intellectual arguments as to why hinduism is evil it's a foreign religion brought in by invaders evil invaders who oppress the natives what natives so that is the reason why all of this exists in the indian education system and it all is this way because the 19th century colonial education system that the british instituted in india is still continuing today it has never been the system has never been reformed so the bunch of people who were to whom power was handed in 1947 they continued the same system and it's it's such a large country that any major change will take a long time to percolate down to the grassroots level which is why you know most likely that's why the current government is is not willing to do it right now it's it's something that is maybe being pushed down the line to a later time maybe we'll do it later we have bigger problems to to solve right now so that is the reason why these narratives have been pushed for such a long time and they are still pushed right now the indian textbooks still lie to students they still serve the purpose of brainwashing students and make them hate their own religion and culture and ancestors in the process shailesh kumar mishra says i came across some outrageous claims on the internet that buddhist monks were persecuted by brahmins in ancient india and brahmins were solely responsible for the downfall of buddhism in india please shed some light on this topic see so this is part of the same narrative that we were just speaking about buddhist monks being persecuted by brahmins do we understand the the nature of power i think it was mao tung who eloquently stated and gave the, the the secret of what power is he said that political power flows out of the barrel of a gun a gun power only comes with the 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 possibility of violence you know if you it's about it's kind of like what marxism says you know if you have, if you can control the means of production then you can control the whole country so when it comes to power if you can control the elements that can elements of violence then you have power so power you don't come to so imagine a democratic election in which somebody is elected and becomes the prime minister or president 
that is simply a title do they actually have power no they would not have it immediately you have to build power and you have to actually gain control of the armed forces the police and the true instruments of power which are the instruments of violence that's what power is now if you want to persecute somebody you need to have control of the means of violence did the brahmins have any control of the means of violence in india did the brahmins have the authority to order the the kings to do this or to do that it was the kings of india the kshatriyas who had the control of the means of violence power political power flows out of the barrel of a gun and from the blade of of a sword so political power was always held in india by the kshatriyas by the rajputs they were later called rajputs you know they ruling the ancient aristocratic clans the post rigvedic clans post vedic clans so political power was always held by the kshatriyas not by the brahmins the job of the brahmins their duty was to was to preserve and inculcate india's ancient knowledge and wisdom they were the teachers they never had any political power they never had any control of the armed forces so in what sense can they unleash persecution on anyone think logically think logically always go down to first principles if you want to persecute somebody you need to have control of the means of violence persecution is always it is always a violent thing and to enforce violence you need the means of violence the armed forces the police forces the the state machinery the bureaucracy the governance machinery and all of these things were historically always in the hands of the ruling class in india which were always the kshatriyas so in what sense does it make any sense for the brahmins to be in a position to to persecute anyone so this is a lie that brahmins persecuted uh, buddhists monks or whatever and brahmins were responsible for the downfall of buddhism in india it was the turks who were responsible for the downfall of buddhism in india there was a whole buddhist belt in northern india in eastern india and western india from gandhara and 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 all the way from uh, the the border with iran all the way to the east to to suvarnabhumi which is uh, myanmar and thailand and all that so and you had the great buddhist mahaviharas uh, and various great universities in india like nalanda takshila etc in nalanda they they taught the vedas they also taught the precepts of buddhism it was not simply a buddhist monastery or a buddhist university uh, a lot of what we believe to be buddhism buddhist elements were actually hindu elements for instance they, they say that the kushan emperors were buddhist emperors look at the coinage of the greatest emperor kanishka only 5% of his coins show buddhist uh, themes 95% show other gods and still they claim he was a buddhist king so the point is buddhism was eradicated by the turks they called you know what they call idols but what does but mean it means buddha they eradicated the turks eradicated buddhism from the entirety of central asia the whole of central asia was buddhist everything was wiped out then it started with gandhar which is present day afghanistan you will find ruins of monasteries all across afghanistan mess ainak is is an excellent example which is now under threat because of the copper which is found in the region so the turks destroyed they even wrote poems about destroying 
Buddhist statues, the statues of Buddhas. You will hardly find a single statue of the Buddha in India which doesn't, which still has its, has its heads head on its shoulders. It was all done by the Turks, not by the Brahmins. So what you do is you first, and, and India's intellectual historians, etc., what they do is they take all the crimes and atrocities perpetrated by the Turks in India and they ascribe it to the Brahmins. And they raise entire generations of Indians who hate their own culture as a consequence of this. So once again, the objective is to make Indians hate their own culture and religion and their own ancestry and to, to facilitate the conversion of the entire population of India out of dharmic faiths. And, you know, the, the Japanese were very clear about this, the samurais. They saw, they they wrote about this. Okay, I am not making this claim. They made this claim. They wrote that when a Japanese person converts to Christianity, they become international, and that's why they persecuted. They they try they opposed Christianity violently. The samurais. That's what they wrote. So if there is any truth to that, if there is, I'm not sure if there is, but if if there is, then such uh, then you know. So that could be the objective, to to make India more open and amenable to foreign influence so that they can create an enormous captive audience in India for their products, convert India into a captive market and leech and drain all the value, all the money out of India, all the resources. This is called neo-colonization. So all of this is facilitated by the education system and the so-called intellectuals and historians who take all the atrocities and crimes perpetrated by the Turks and ascribe them to the Brahmins. And most Indians believe this nonsense. That's the problem. That's a tragedy. <clears throat> per DD says, can you explain why the Indian education system is a failure but it still produced many great people? Can you give your opinions? Can you... <sighs> Look, India has produced many great people. No doubt about it. But how many of them have been produced by the education system and how many of them have become great despite the education system is what we have to ask ourselves. Take the example of Srinivas Ramanujan, one of the greatest mathematicians of all time. Did the Indian education system produce him? No. The Indian education almost destroyed him. He excelled at mathematics but he was he was very poor in his studies when it came to English grammar and social studies or whatever else it was and there was a there was the chance that he would not be allowed to to pass the 10th standard exam or whatever it was the education system did its best to destroy him he got lucky that's why he is known to the world i can assure you there are many more ramanujans who have come and gone and the world has never come, come to know of them because the education system destroyed them so if somebody somehow succeeds in india it's despite the education system not because of the education system let me give you the example of, there are so many great institutions in India, educational institutions in India. There is something called the Institute of Advanced Studies or something in Shimla. Shimla. There are so many so-called great universities of, in India. There are so many IITs in India. Tell me something. What great ground-breaking ground work have they done in the past 20 years, 50 years? Produce one, Tell me a single great achievement. 
that has been produced by the Indian Institute of, uh, of Advanced Study, Shimla, or by IIT, whatever, which is whichever is your favorite IIT, or whichever is your favorite university. Tell me one result they have produced, which is world-class in nature. Top of the best. Best of the best. Nothing. Nothing. The Indian educational institutes are institutions that uh, that produce mediocrity. I'm not saying all the uh, professors and teachers therein are mediocre. Maybe 2% or 3% are exceptional. But they have to work within the horrible mediocre system that, that prioritizes mediocrity and punishes greatness or brilliance. So if, if we do produce some great scientists like Professor Desi Raju, etc., it is that the fact is that they have excelled despite the system, not because of the system. The Indian education system is designed to seek out and destroy talent and to promote and reward mediocrity. That is the true nature of the Indian education system. And it considers the academic staff and non-academic staff to be the true stakeholders. It considers the students to be a nuisance. Ask yourself a simple question. Let's say a student misbehaves in class. What's going to happen? That student is most gonna get, most likely going to be suspended or thrown out of the educational institution, the school, the college, the university. Very high chance the student will be punished harshly and thrown out. Imagine a staff member misbehaves in the same manner, most likely it will be hushed up and nothing will happen. Maybe some technical punishment will be given, you know, suspension for a week at worst or something like that. And then they are back and nothing is it's, it's as if nothing happened. So it it the education system treats the staff as the stakeholders, not the students. The actual purpose of an education system is to treat the stakeholder, the students as stakeholders. And to its 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 job is to produce confident, highly capable young adults who are capable of taking on the world and changing the world. That's not what the Indian education system does. It produces diffident, insecure uh, young adults who are clueless and confused and who don't have any real skills. So you, you come with a degree and whatever and then you have to go and get a job and then you have to be trained all over again when you start the job. That's what happens. So the Indian education system is a complete failure. It has not produced any great people. Whatever great people India has produced have, have been produced despite the education system. They have had to fight the education system every step of the way and then get out of it and then succeed somehow in life. That's what's happened. Don't ascribe any greatness in India to the education system. That's not the case. Next question. Sangeeta says, people say, good, people say good educated people should be the country's head. But Prime Minister Modi has not any higher educational degree. Don't you think we, cho we chose a wrong leader for our country who is not enough educated? Do you not think there should be a law introduced for minimum educational qualifications that should be required to become an MP or MLA in our country? And what are your thoughts on PM Modi's leadership, all those things? Ah, so as far as I know, Prime Minister Modi has a master's degree in something or the other. So he does have a master's degree. Uh, so should the country's leader be a highly educated person? We had such a person. 
Dr. Manmohan Singh, an extremely highly educated person with a PhD, how was his leadership? By any objective measure of the output of his government, the achievements of his government, he was in power for 10 years. What achievements did his government, can his government boast of in, in 10 years? He was an extremely well-educated person. Today we have a Prime Minister who has a master's degree, less supposedly less educated than Dr. Manmohan Singh. And the question is, should we have a law that we need to have a certain minimum amount of education qualifications if you want to become an MP or MLA? I think education, the education does not tell you anything about a person's capabilities. Firstly, this applies to not just the Indian education system, but to any education system in the world. A person may be brilliant even if they have not acquired a high degree. Uh, you know, in politics, in leadership, what matters? Your understanding of the country and its people and their problems and your ability to solve those problems by using other people and the, and the machinery of the governance system that you have. That's what matters in, in leadership. Do you think the great, imagine all the great leaders of, of, our, of our times or in, in, the, in past history, how many of them have been highly educated? What was Alexander the Great's educational degree? What about Julius Caesar? What about Hannibal Barca? What about Chinggis Khan? What about Mao Zedong? What about Joseph Stalin? Yes, uh, Subhash Chandra Bose was highly educated. True. So, and, and I think he stood first in the Indian civil services, which is now called the IAS. So he's an exception. But most of the greatest leaders of all time did not have any great educational degree. So there is no correspondence or correlation between a high, between a high, between being highly educated and being a great leader or being a great politician. There is no actual correspondence. And when it comes to the Indian education system, like, like I said, it promotes mediocrity, destroys talent. So the people who come out on top are the most mediocre people, actually. You will see that people who uh, you know, stand in the top 10 or top 100 in your 10th standard exam or 12th standard exam or whatever. Wait for 20, 30 years and see what they achieve in life. It's typically the people who are in the middle benches or the last benches who will become the best business people, the, the best entrepreneurs or maybe the best politicians. And the ones who get the highest marks typically end up doing 9 to 5 jobs and being very good employees because the, the education system teaches you to conform Obey, obey and conform. So the most successful ones are the most mediocre, who obey the best. It is the rebels who don't do well in the education system who actually can change the world. So I think it's a very bad idea to have any law like this, that you need a certain minimum education qualification, which is a complete waste of time, actually. I think once you're done with the 1200 exam, you should be, should be out in the world. And unless you, you are, you, 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 want to be a great scientist or, or you know, if you have certain a certain kind of aptitude or inclination, then you can go and pursue higher education. But overall, it, it really adds nothing much to your life. So most people, they just want to go and work, right? So I think it, it makes sense that once you're 16, 17, you should be out in the in the world and become an apprentice in some, some industry and start learning on the job itself. That makes much more sense. And even in politics, you can become, if you want to be a leader, 
or a politician mp mla become politically active in some political party the youth wing or whatever it is whichever your favorite political party is by the time you 17 18 you don't need high education to be a better politician or a better leader so so i don't agree at all that that we need highly educated people or we need to have a bar that people must cross in terms of educational qualifications before they are allowed allowed to become mps or mlas that's that's a very bad idea and uh, do with do i think we have chosen a wrong leader for a country i mean look at how india has changed in the past 7 uh, 8 years the most educated people who were prime ministers before mr modi what did they achieve he has achieved more in the past 7 8 years than the, most of them have achieved in the past 70 years like we just spoke of a, a while ago it, it is now for the first time after india's independence that the world takes india seriously and when india does something they they take notice and they listen it's only happened in the past 7 8 years it's not thanks to mr manmohan singh or anybody else that this has happened so i don't think that educational qualifications make any difference in leadership a, a genuinely great leader is somebody who understands the people the nation the potential that the nation has the problems the nation is facing and that leader also has the ability to find solutions and to get people on board the message and 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 the direction in which the nation needs to go these are the qualities of a great leader and that doesn't come with education you you can take a theoretical course in leadership or political science it's going to give you no real real world skills you you'll be fulfilled with bookish knowledge you know when you want to become a genuine let's say physicist or mathematician the way to do it is to solve problems not by reading books you can sit all day and read textbooks it's going to give you no actual skills the only skills you will gain will be gained when you actually take a pen and paper and start solving problems similarly when it comes to political science and leadership you can take courses and read books it will teach you nothing it's only when you try to solve problems which is means you go out in, in society and try solving actual problems that's when you develop leadership skills so i don't think educational degrees matter at all in leadership and politics and we should not have any such law that says that we must have a certain minimum qualification educational qualification without which you can't become mp or mla that's a very bad idea <coughs> oh, excuse me <coughs> jp112 says <coughs> excuse me a big fan from bangladesh thank you very much sir thank you can the indian subcontinent reunite again and work like the eu what should be the steps and how much time will it take you know historically indian indian history has gone through cycles it's a, a cyclical process there have been times of political unification of the entire subcontinent when you had great emperors leaders of india the mauryan empire it it reached its pinnacle under emperor ashok the great uh the kushan empire it reached its pinnacle under uh emperor kanishka the great so you had great emperors like uh, ashoka chandragupta also kanishka you had the chola emperors you had uh, the karkota dynasty and so on there have been times when india has been politically united as 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 an entire subcontinent under one empire but there have been times in between which are more frequent when india has been politically disunited lots of small the guptas i forgot to mention the gupta empire as well 
But there have been times when India has been disunited, not under a single political leadership. Lots of different kingdoms, small, medium, largish kingdoms here and there, and different dominions. So in, during those times when India was not under a single empire, in those times, India did function like what the EU functions like today. Of course, in the EU, you have a president of the EU and a central leadership in Brussels and all that. Uh, that was not there. But you had essentially open borders in India. You did not need passports and visas to apply to travel from one kingdom to another. You did not have that. And you had the same civilizational language, which typically was Sanskrit. And you had the same culture. So you may come from, let's say, uh, let's say Magad. And let's say you want to go uh, to the to, to to somewhere in in southern India, then there will be a common language that everybody understands, which will be Sanskrit, and you all practice the same essentially the same culture, Hinduism, in its various forms. But you understand what it is all about, so there will be no culture shock. There will be a language shock or whatever a little bit, but you all speak Sanskrit as the common language. So it was an EU kind of system. Whenever India was disunited, you had lots of kingdoms. The common civilians, etc., they could go from kingdom to king kingdom for trade or whatever. And there was no, no problem as such. So it was very much an EU-like system, apart from the central leadership that EU is supposed to have. Uh, today we have the Westphalian nation-state system, which means that you need to have these passports and visas to travel from one nation to another. India and Nepal don't have this system, which is a good thing. Uh, so imagine a system which has the India-Nepal kind of arrangement all over. So when it comes to India-Sri Lanka, also no passport, no visa needed. Just show your documents and get in. No no uh, authorization needed. That could happen. When it comes to nations like Bangladesh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, it's still problematic. When it comes to Bangladesh, whether you like it or not, there is the problem of illegal immigra immigration into India, which is a huge major problem. And I don't think there's any long-term solution now, except for eventually creating an EU-like system or maybe reabsorbing Bangladesh into India in the distant future, perhaps. When the, Well, it, it's not something that, that can happen anytime in the immediate future. Uh, it's possible that this sort of thing could happen again. So what steps need to be taken? First of all, Pakistan is a problem. There's a reason why SARC doesn't work, the South Asian cooperation. Uh, South Asian whatever for regional cooperation, that system, that organization, it is no longer functional because of Pakistan, the terrorist nation. The first problem that stands in the way of EU-like system in, in the subcontinent is Pakistan. Pakistan is a terrorist nation. It is a proxy for other nations to destabilize the subcontinent, all of us. It's a problem for Afghanistan, it's a problem for Iran, and of course it's a problem for India. The first thing needs, that needs to happen is that the Pakistani army needs to be neutralized. It is holding the entire population of Pakistan hostage and leeching off them, taking out all the value from Pakistan and stashing it into foreign bank accounts. And when these generals and politicians retire, they they go and live in other countries. And typically their children are citizens of other countries and enjoy the great life there in the West. So the Pakistani army needs to be neutralized. It needs to be dealt with. It's a terrorist organization. It's a mercenary organization. It is not working for the interests of the people of Pakistan or the interests of the people of the subcontinent. So the, once the Pakistani army is dealt with, it's going to end up in the fragmentation of Pakistan into four pieces, I would say. Sindhudesh, Punjab, uh, Pashtunistan, and Baluchistan. Pashtunistan most likely would want to re be reintegrate itself with Afghanistan, which, which makes sense. 
Jammu and Kashmir, Gilgit Baltistan will be reabsorbed by India, where it, it, they belong actually. Uh, so once that happens, it, it's gonna. It's, we still can't have an EU-like system where people can travel freely because the population of Pakistan is deeply radicalized. They've been taught since day one that India is the enemy, and it's a cultural thing issue, uh, cultural issue as well, religious issue as well. They hate everybody who doesn't uh, follow their religion. So even after Pakistan is dealt with in this manner peacefully, hopefully, uh, we will not be able to have immediately an EU-like system where people can start traveling freely. Because that's going to create huge problems for India. So there needs to be a period of de-radicalization, which will take several generations, maybe 30, 40, 50, 60 years, maybe a century. Maybe a century. It's a long-term process. It's not going to happen next week, my friends. And similarly with Bangladesh also, there are these very strong anti-India sentiments in significant uh, numbers of Bangladeshi people. Whether you like it or not, it's the truth. Just... When was Bangladesh liberated from Pakistan? 71, that's about 40 years ago. In just 40 years, they've become extremely strongly pro-Pakistan, despite everything Pakistan did to their ancestors and their own people. Many Bangladeshis are strongly pro-Pakistan and anti-India. So we can't have an open border with Bangladesh the way we have with Nepal under those circumstances. Uh, it's going to take time. So maybe 50 years or so. And when the, the populations of these nations are significantly de-radicalized and they no longer hate everybody else in the subcontinent, then we can open up the borders possibly and have an EU-like system in the subcontinent, which would I would expect it to include Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Maldives, possibly Burma also, possibly if they want to. But that's not going to happen anytime in the near future. At least 50 years will have to pass. And only if certain measures are taken can this happen. So it's it's a distant dream for now. For now, it's a distant dream. Rodrajit Sarkar says, We all know how Europeans took over the entirety of the American continent by con conducting barbaric genocide against the Native Americans. But did Europeans conduct any genocide against the Africans? African people. Map. Where's the map? All right. Map. Here is the map. So we know that uh, which year was it? 1492 was it that that uh, Columbus discovered discovered America? So for about 500 years, these people have been uh, have been conducting their colonization of various parts of the world. They took over uh, North and South America. They took over Australia and Tasmania, New Zealand and Africa. So there are two kinds of colonialism, colonization. One is settler colonization and the other one is economic colonization. In settler colonization, you take over an entire region and eradicate the natives from that region or subjugate them and reduce them to third class status. And then you take over the entire land and you take the best part of the land and you create your own cities and, and countries on it. That's what happened in North America and South America. The natives don't figure anywhere in the, in the politics or the leadership or the administration or anything in these regions. Canada, the US, Mexico. In Canada and the US, the national language is English. The governance system is the essentially an out, outgrowth of the British governance system. In Southern America, in Brazil, it's Portuguese. In the other countries, it is Spanish. In Central America, again, it's Spanish. So these nations, these regions have suffered from settler colonization. And especially in North America, there was a horrific genocide conducted by the Europeans 
of the Native Americans, approximately 100 million Native Americans were killed off, which is a shocking, horrific number. And today they talk about human rights and democracy. Uh, so yes, there was, this, like like Rodriguez says, this barbaric genocide of the Native Americans. In Australia, the same thing happened. Even today, the natives of Australia, the, the so-called aboriginals, are second-class citizens in Australia. They are made to live in the harsh hinterland, the, the internal lands of Australia, while all the green regions, the coastal regions, have been taken over by the invaders, the descendants of the colonialists. In Tasmania, the native Tasmanians were entirely exterminated. Not a single one of them is alive today. In New Zealand, again, the Maoris are, are essentially, to a significant extent, treated like second-class citizens. The rate of crime, of drug abuse, of, of alcoholism, suicide, etc. is very high among the natives compared to the uh, descendants of the colonizers. So we know all this happened. When it comes to Africa, they, the Europeans did not indulge in settler colonialism except for places like South Africa, Namibia, uh, etc. In other parts of Africa, they only indulged in resource colonization, colonialism and economic colonization. But there were genocides in Africa as well. The best example is the Congo genocide conducted by the Belgians. So today, the EU capital, Brussels, is in Belgium. Yes, they talk about human rights and democracy. Well, they are the perpetrators, the Belgians, of one of the worst genocides in human history. At least 10 million uh, Congolese persons, people, were massacred over a period of about 30 years or so by the Belgians under the great King Leopold. Uh, and the entire region was totally devastated and impoverished. People were made to work on these rubber plantations and other plantations, and they had they were given quotas of how much uh, produce product to uh, give back to the masters every day. And if they did not meet the quotas, their hands and legs were cut off, especially including the hands and legs of small children. That's the horrific abuses and atrocities the Belgians perpetrated in Congo. And today they talk about human rights. So yes, and obviously there were many more genocides. The Germans colonized part of parts of Africa. They also wiped out entire ethnicities of people, you know, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. So it's an untold story. There is so much that's happened to Africa that nobody writes about and nobody wants to speak about. And unfortunately, Africa is still being colonized economically by various European nations today. Not just European nations, but also by other nations today. So... And, and Madame Giorgia Meloni has spoken about this. She is a big fan of Monsieur Macron. So, yeah, it's still going on. So, yes, the Europeans did conduct genocides against the Africans. Shivansh says, why are black Af Americans called African Americans, but white Americans are, called, are not called European Americans? Excellent question. Anybody who uh, has any... African ancestry is called earlier they were called blacks earlier they used much worse words for the for the African uh, Americans which I will not repeat here they were also called blacks I, I think they're still called black people but nowadays they're called people of uh, pe some some of them are called another term is, is person of color which applies to even brown skinned people like us and uh, nowadays the, the correct terminology is African American 
and they have this one drop rule in the US which means if a person has even one drop of african blood they are considered to be black or african american which is weird then the question is why are white americans not called european americans when black people are called african americans it's very strange some white people do identify as as irish american or italian american which means they see europe not as a monolithic entity but as a very diverse region full of uh, sub ethnicities so in the western mind in their world view europe is a region which is as we can see it's much smaller than africa much smaller but it's a very diverse place so it's not right to call anybody a european american you are either italian american or irish american or french american or german american but not european american but the western mind sees africa this enormous continent as a single monolithic entity so every anybody who comes from africa who has ancestry in africa is african american as if africa is just one monolithic single ethnic group which is not the case if you if you ask recent americans a uh, recent immigrants from africa to america they will identify as ethiopian american or nigerian american or 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 whatever tanzanian american congolese american somalian american but for the non africans they are all the same so the white people the, the europeans they see africa as a single entity as a monolithic entity they don't recognize the fact that there are hundreds of ethnic groups and hundreds of cultures within africa the genetic and ethnic and cultural diversity in, in africa ex- far exceeds far surpasses anything seen anywhere else in the world that's how diverse africa is so you go to africa you go to egypt they will not see the, themselves as a, as the same ethnicity as somebody in niger or or sierra leone or or or, or kenya the egyptians don't see themselves as the same as those people they are a different ethnicity and different culture in the same ways for goes for people in tanzania in kenya in ethiopia in eritrea in namibia in 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 gabon they all see themselves as distinct ethnicities with very distinct traditions very distinct uh, heritage and culture and and way of life so we have to understand that africa is an extremely diverse place but the europeans the 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 westerners don't see it that way they want to oversimplify everything and it is an insult to africa that any black person is simply called an african american rather than trying to go into the roots and the other reason is that the americans simply don't care and there is no way of knowing today what the roots of many of these african americans are many of them were brought in as slaves from western africa but no one knew which specific ethnic group they came from in over time they they themselves forgot what their place of origin was after several generations because they were treated as slaves and children would be uprooted from their parents and sold off somewhere else and they would never see the parents again so they would not have any shared history that was passed down from parent to child it's horrific what has been done to the african americans and that's why they only see themselves as african today most of them don't know what their original ethnicity was what their original culture was where their ancestors were kidnapped from and brought to america as slaves we know it typically happened from western africa but there are many nations from inside africa from where these slaves were procured uh it's it's a it's a terrible terrible history and it's it's sad what has been done to africa so that's the reason why black americans are typically just called african americans but newer immigrants to to america from africa they will see themselves and they will identify not as african american but as 
whatever region it is you know nigerian american or or senegalese american or congolese american or kenyan american or ethiopian american or whatever else it is rodrajit sarkar again says why didn't the ottomans conquer and occupy persia even after defeating persia numerous times so uh, okay let's look at the map we should see the map to understand uh, what this is about right so persia is iran what we now call iran is historically been persia and the ottoman empire was centered around turkey the capital was constantinople now called istanbul and the ottoman empire uh it expanded northwards and westwards and to some extent eastwards as well uh, iraq syria jordan all of that was part of the ottoman empire so was the arabian peninsula also egypt and some parts of north africa at the time and in the west they had the safavids the 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 persians uh and these were two powerful entities and they did go to war several times there was uh, the battle of chaldiran the battle of dimdim the battle of baghdad in the in the 17th century significant battles uh and and the ottomans captured baghdad from the persians and that's how iraq came into uh, ottoman hands in the 17th century there was a major blow to the persian safavid empire so these two uh, empires had a common boundary which made them adversaries but typically what happened is that uh, the see persia was to to some extent it's a very large geographical region it's definitely much smaller than india but it is still a very large uh, country or geographical region it is much larger than present day turkey and their empire the persian empire also was larger than what uh, it was it went beyond the present day boundaries of iran so these were two significant empires and it did not make sense most likely for the ottomans to try and conquer the persian heartland because they would meet enormous resistance there the persian empire was a well oiled empire well organized empire it had this great uh, history of 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 fighting of invaders and it was so so it 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 could not be conquered easily it would cost a great amount of of resources which maybe those resources could could be used elsewhere for the ottoman empire so the size and the strength of persia firstly was the major reason why the ottomans never tried very seriously to conquer persia they did conquer you know parts of the persian empire which were non persian regions like iraq for instance obviously like i said in the 17th century the battle of baghdad they captured baghdad and after that it became part of the ottoman empire but they never tried to capture seriously persia itself because that would be too difficult most likely secondly it's it's, it's a religious thing the shia sunni issue uh, the ottoman empire was a sunni empire persia was a shia country a shia uh, empire and if they went to war with the shias the ottomans also had various shia sects and ethnic and, and ethnic, ethnic groups within their empire they possibly did not want to to set off a shia sunni kind of conflict within their own empire by trying to invade persia so that is a possibility uh and they also had reasonably good uh diplomatic and political relations with the persians so that could also contribute to that so mainly their focus was westwards for the ottomans it was westwards they wanted to conquer europe i think they see the ottomans the turks 
they started off as central asian nomads they conquered anatolia and they they had this practice of bride capturing and there were so many helpless defenseless families in anatolia all greek origin people some armenian some georgian etc so they they would kidnap these women and force them to marry and convert to the religion and that's how the entire ethnicity of the turks changed today they looked just like europeans mainly the, the overall are more or less the same as the greeks the ethnicity is more or less the same the same if you do genetic analysis you will see that the paternal haplogroups are central asian haplogroups uh, lineages but the matrilineal uh, lineages are, are all local greek and armenian and all that so over time they they became european in appearance and mo- maybe they identified more with europe than with asia so the persians obviously are not europeans the persians are not white people uh so maybe some of that may also have played a factor that they identified more with europe and they wanted to co- conquer europe uh, you know <clears throat> the byzantine empire that they conquered was the eastern roman empire and some of their emperors did express the desire to conquer western rome as well so their their focus historically was always westwards and their major threats were also westwards the christian nations so uh so given a choice i think they wanted to fight the christians more than their fellow muslims even though they were sunnis so it's a combination of these factors that that uh caused the uh, the ottomans to not take the possibility of conquering persia seriously and they always focused their energies and their conquests westwards even though they did fight a few wars with the persians and they did take some territory from the persians but overall it was just too much of a stretch too big of an ask for them amazing indian citizen says many travelers have written that in ancient india theft was so low that many people kept their doors and windows open but then how did they prevent mosquitoes and other in- insects from coming into the house <laughs> excuse me <coughs> good question uh yeah so theft was very low and the crime was very low so most indians kept their doors and windows open at night and slept with the doors and windows open in villages and towns all that the problem is that india is a very uh, warm nation warm climate very healthy climate lots of rivers lots of water bodies lakes and all that especially historically every village would have at least a pond or a lake now it's no longer longer the case but historically it was like that so that obviously has it creates this problem of mosquito breeding so mosquitoes must have been a problem in ancient india so what did indians do we had a practice called fumigation ayurvedic fumigation so what they would do is they would take a big bowl kind of thing you know big huge bowl in which they would uh, put dried cow dung and various uh, herbs dried out uh, herbal uh, components that would ward off insects and mosquitoes and there is a practice many indians even practice in the 20th century especially in villages and all that so a big bowl like instrument or, or 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 vessel in which you you put cow dung and maybe some hay maybe some chips of wood and these ayurvedic uh, plants dried out plants or whatever that would keep on burning slowly throughout the night give off smoke that would not be harmful to humans but it would ward off insects especially mosquitoes you put that in a corner of the room in the house there were no fans ceiling fans at the, at the time so it will just keep on burning slowly 
it will it the, the smoke will permeate the house maybe give a nice smell as well it would not harm humans whatsoever but it would it would keep mosquitoes away so all this knowledge was encoded in ayurveda we have kind of lost all those things today today we use chemicals the sprays and all that to ward off insects and mosquitoes uh, we also have the, those those spiral spiral things right that you burn and this they keep burning through the night so that comes from the ancient practice that indians had of of fumigating the house or uh, typically would fumigate it once a week or once a month properly keep get everybody out of the house and put a big blast of smoke that will keep kill off any insects that have been hidden somewhere but typically you would do that every night to a lesser degree and that's how indians in old days warded off mosquitoes and other insects interesting question that you asked here Daniel Nicholson says with present day technology is it possible to genetically re-engineer extinct species like dinosaurs saber tooths and mammoths how long can dna be used to clone life before it becomes useless a uh, good question so uh uh technically it, it can be done if you have the source dna of the extinct species then you can use that to recreate you know to clone that ancient species and create uh and to bring it back to life but when it comes to dinosaurs dinosaurs the non avian dinosaurs died out about 66 million years ago the avian ones are still around they're all around us in case you don't know so the, when it comes to let's say you want to 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 uh reengineer the extinct tyrannosaurus rex species of dinosaurs then first of all you would need uh, excuse me uh, you would need the original dna the code the genetic blueprint of the t-rex do we have it we don't have it so dna degrades over time dna is fragile it does it's quite hardy it's also fragile fragile so you can extract dna from ancient humans who died let's say 10000 years ago you can extract dna from animals that died 20 30000 years ago but when it comes to animals that died millions of years ago it's very hard to extract dna from their remains first of all the remains are fossilized typically of course one it has been discovered that many t-rex fossils when you break the femur which is the thigh bone there still is often soft tissue wet tissue inside and they have discovered tissue that contains blood vessels and even what looks like rbcs red blood cells so it may perhaps be possible to extract some dna i don't think it's been done thus far at least nobody has published any any research paper saying that it's been done but the possibility does exist but if you do extract dna the dna is going to be degraded and damaged which means it will have missing sequences then how do you reengineer the species one thing you could do is you take the 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 dna of a closely related animal like the chicken for instance or the turkey and you take the dna of the turkey and you use that to fill in the missing gaps in the dna of the or the t-rex and then you try to implant that into you know and maybe hatch an egg uh, you take you take uh, you take a fertilized or unfertilized chicken egg or perhaps turkey egg and you fertilize it with a sperm which contains the modified dna and then hopefully it will give rise to a t-rex egg. that's that's theoretically how you would do it when it comes to mammoths for instance mammoths went extinct about 10000 years ago and we find uh, well preserved frozen mammoth bodies in the permafrost in siberia etc uh, quite frequently so we do have access to mammoth dna mostly undamaged 
mammoth DNA. So what you could do is you take a very closely re- related species like the Indian elephant, for instance, which I think is the closest relative to the extinct mammoth. And you simply insert mammoth DNA into uh, and and, and uh, you, create a, you create an embryo and a fetus out of it. And then you implant that into the womb of a female Indian elephant. And after whatever months it is, she will give birth to an ex- to to an actual mammoth that is something that can be done i'm sure if we want to i'm not sure if anybody has done it obviously we, it would be big news if, if somebody did that but i think that's much closer to being reality than dinosaurs uh, saber tooth also it may be possible you take uh, an animal of a similar size a cat of a similar, similar size like a puma or a lynx or a leopard or maybe a tiger or whatever, and you do the same procedure, it may be possible to give birth to an actual saber-tooth infant. So that's that's something that's closer to reality than, than, to bring back, than bringing back dinosaurs. Uh, so how long can DNA be used to clone life before it becomes useless? DNA, which is, is in a dead organism's body, it degrades over time. If it is well-preserved, uh, in a dry environment, it may last longer, especially if the environment is cool. When it comes to India, the environment is hot, warm. There's a lot of rainfall. That's why any buried body will degrade very fast. And it's very hard to extract viable DNA from that. That's why it's been so hard to extract DNA from uh, the Saraswati Sindhu region, where you do find skeletons, but the DNA is typically highly degraded. Uh, when it comes to... Uh, human bodies or animal bodies that are frozen, let's say in permafrost, then the DNA typically stays more or less significantly more intact than it would otherwise do. So I would say that maybe it it would be possible to extract viable DNA from uh, a dead organism that is maybe a few tens of thousand years old. But when it comes to the timescale of millions of years, it becomes extremely difficult to extract any useful, usable genetic information uh soman says hope you picked my question this time well i picked it there you go i want to know about hypnotism is it real or is it just a trick i've seen many people sharing their experience about their past life when hypnotized can a human brain remember fragments of the past life what are your thoughts on this listen i have no idea about past lives i can talk to you about what See, there is no actual scientific evidence of of past lives. People have stories, but you can't prove those stories. You can't corroborate those stories scientifically. To actually prove uh, reincarnation, you have to first prove the existence of the soul. The soul is a non-physical object. You can't measure it, quantify it, take pictures of it, weigh it. So it is something that is beyond the realm of science. And therefore, the, the entire idea of rebirth, reincarnation is beyond the realm of science. It belongs in the realm, realm of philosophy or psychology or, 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 or yeah, philosophy, philosophy, not science. So you cannot discuss it from a scientific perspective. What I talk about is from a scientific perspective mainly. So I don't know about reincarnation, past life, all those things. The question, I will take the question about hypnotism. What is hypnosis? So hypnosis is is a state, a mental state of heightened suggestibility, where an individual is more receptive to external suggestions than otherwise he or she would be. And based on these external suggestions, that person may exhibit and experience changes in perception and behavior. 
so hypnosis is induced through a variety of techniques you know standard techniques relaxation techniques like deep breathing you start with deep breathing you relax the body progressive muscle relaxation and then you there are scripts hypnosis text scripts you read out the script and the person has to follow the the procedure the orders and that is what is used to guide the individual the person into a deep hypnotic state so it's it's been used for a variety of purposes typically therapeutic purposes to reduce somebody's anxiety to improve the quality of a person's sleep uh to to cure phobias you know to treat phobias and to treat certain mental health conditions and hypnosis is also used by by these entertainers you know stage hypnosis and all that where a hypnot when a person a hypnotist will invite volunteers from the audience to participate in hypnosis experiments which are typically entertaining funny or bizarre or some of some kind so that's what hypnosis is it is not mind control you, you cannot be hypnotized by somebody against your will you can only be hypnotized if you allow them to hypnotize you nobody can forcefully hypnotize you okay so people cannot be forcefully hypnotized and they cannot be forcefully made to do things against their wishes and against their belief or their or their ethics and morality and hypnosis may not be effective with everybody so some people may be more susceptible to hypnosis and some people may be such that it is almost impossible to hypnotize them even if they want to be hypnotized so that is what hypnosis is see they say that the human mind the psyche has a conscious element and a subconscious element a subconscious mind and a conscious mind so hypnosis is something that typically opens up the subconscious mind to active suggestion and participation and you know you can even hypnotize yourself there are books and scripts available that you have to follow and you can actually hypnotize yourself it's an interesting i'm sure you can simply google it self hypnosis script and obviously each self hypnosis script will have a certain purpose some of them are about you know and it's a you also get these audio files you know uh, somebody puts you into this relaxed uh, mindset they give you instructions you have to mentally follow the instructions to relax yourself calm yourself close your eyes and uh, repeat whatever is after them count back from 20 to 1 or whatever and it's an entire script which you can listen to or you can even read it out to yourself with your eyes open and that will place you into a state of hypnosis and each of these scripts will have a certain purpose for some people it's about more self confidence or whatever for some people it's about uh, quitting smoking or quitting whatever um, addiction they have so there are hypnosis scripts that are ready ready made and available and they all serve a certain purpose it's very interesting you should try it out and some of them are just for just for experiencing the state of hypnosis so i have seen books that deal with this topic and i have seen uh, various uh, mentalists or whatever who who sell hypnosis scripts it's a very interesting topic and i am sure you can access such scripts online if you just do a simple google search try it out and see how it feels interesting um Okay Daniel says could you please enlighten us about the Andromeda galaxy which is, that is said to have a cannibalistic appetite for other galaxies how why does a galaxy devour smaller galaxies will our dear milky way eventually be gobbled up by andromeda look uh, galaxies don't have personalities and behavioral traits and 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 preferences you know people talk about black holes as being rogue black holes and vacuum cleaners no it's not like that black holes galaxies all objects in the universe 
follow the laws of physics. They don't have individual quirks and personalities. So the Andromeda galaxy doesn't have any cannibalistic appetite for galaxies. It is part of the local group of galaxies. All the galaxies outside the local group are moving away from us. But the galaxies within the local group, our local group, of which the Milky Way is a part, these galaxies are coming towards each other. Because the force of gravity overcomes the expansion of the universe within the local group. So Andromeda galaxy and the Milky Way are coming towards each other because of the force of gravity which can be, which you will find in any textbook of physics. Newtonian gravity, general relativity, that's all it is. There is no special quirk that the Andromeda galaxy has that it prefers to eat galaxies. So that's number one. So yes, Andromeda is coming towards the Milky Way. Milky Way is going towards Andromeda. They are moving towards each other. Andromeda is larger than our galaxy. Eventually, in about 5 billion years or so, roughly, the two galaxies will come together and merge. It's not going to be a collision. There will be nothing banging against each other. Nothing. Galaxies are mainly empty space. So the two galaxies will come together, merge, and then stars will be thrown out in all directions. It's going to be a messy affair for a long, long time. And then eventually everything will, will come back together and they will merge and form a much larger galaxy. And some people give the name Milkomeda or whatever to it. So eventually that's what's going to happen. This process will begin in about 5 billion years when the two galaxies will come together and merge and the merger will begin. It's going to be a galactic dance mediated by the force of gravity. Mainly gravity only. And eventually, you will have a much larger composite galaxy that emerges out of that. And most likely, the black hole, the supermassive black hole at the center of the Andromeda galaxy and the one at the center of our galaxy, they eventually will do a tango. They will go around each other. And eventually, they will merge too. And that could give off, give off spectacular fireworks that may or may not be harmful to life in the galaxy if it does exist. That's what's going to happen, my friends. Okay, I, as always, I have many more questions which I will not have the time to take. Let's take some questions from the live chat. Do you all have any questions? If you have questions, please ask me and I shall take a few. MacPur says the sun will not last that long. Uh, the sun... <laughs> what will happen to the sun is interesting. So the sun is going to become a red giant in about 5 billion years time. So yes, by the time the the merger of Andromeda and, and uh, the Milky Way happen, the sun will be more or less on its last legs. And eventually it's going to give off its its outer layers and, and that which will give rise to what we call a planetary nebula. And what will be left of the sun is going to be a white dwarf, which eventually will slowly, slowly, slowly lose its, its temperature. And eventually it will become a giant diamond carbon black dwarf eventually in the far far future all right any other question let's see i'm sure there are lots of other questions giuseppe di fraia says what do you think please about good relationship of a woman and built on trust or love what with a woman any relation is built on trust and love when it comes to a relationship between a man and a woman it's it's it has to be built on trust and on love both things you also need to have some common objectives in life. So if your common objectives match with the, the partner's common, common objectives, then you have a convergence of geopolitical interests, which means that you can have a long-term partnership. That's how it typically works. You see? So it has to be built on trust, shared 
objectives, share interests and love. Without that, it won't last long. Okay. Uh, Ajay Reddy is a new member. Welcome, sir. Thank you so much. Time for my Discord server. Maybe I should explore that option. Yeah, I will have to hire some people to do that because last time I was trying to do it myself and I didn't know how the time to administer it and some people were trying to take over or whatever. So maybe in the future I should perhaps do that again. Uh, do we have any other interesting questions? Uh, what is the best way, says Somia, to inculcate self-discipline, get rid of bad addictions? Well, everybody has some bad habits or the other. Everybody, I'm sure, has. The best way to inculcate self-discipline, you take one activity and focus on that. So the easiest example I can give you is to join a gym and start lifting weights. And you got to do it consistently. You give yourself a target of five or six times a week. You're going to go to gym and lift your weights. You need to have a program. You lift weights. And once you become disciplined in that, that discipline is going to permeate in other sphere, in your other spheres of life and activity. So if you become disciplined in one activity, in one aspect of your life, that discipline is like a, is like a muscle. So it's going to you know, spill over into other aspects of your life as well. When it comes to bad addictions, typically if you are addicted to something, let's say smoking or drinking or whatever it is, hypothetically, you typically, see, it's, it's, it's an attempt to fill some kind of gap in your life. And then the chemical dependency takes over. So it's really hard to, I'm sure to to get rid of these addictions. So typically what you have to do is you have to replace that thing with something that is better. So maybe maybe get rid of the habit of whatever it is by re- replacing it with uh, something else, a healthier habit. So if you have an addiction to let's say fast food, you learn something new, learn a new skill, cooking, cuisine, and cook something nice and healthy every day. And replace your fast food addiction with your healthy eating and make that an addiction. So a healthy eating addiction is going to be a good addiction, right? So that, that's typically what you have to do. It's obviously not as easy as it as I make it sound over here. It's really tough, but you got to do that. All right, I think I'm going to end it over here. Two hours, 10 minutes. All right, so this is the end of today's session. Thank you so much, everybody, for all the questions and for participating and for watching. And we're going to continue this next week. So I will see you in the next week's live streams very soon, not not far away from, from today. Until then, take care. Keep going, raise your standards, and I will see you very soon. Thank you. Good day, good night. Bye.